Is it also interesting how your parents uh, were early adopters? So why, why do you think they? What what what, what, uh, what kind of people are they to be like? Oh, we, we want the first electric car. Why, why would you ever? Why would you do that? Well, they just knew that it had to start somewhere. They knew EVs or a change in efficiency of vehicles had to happen at some point. They just knew that the technology was there, but someone had to be an early adopter. And if everyone said, oh, I'll wait to the second gen, there's just going to be no of those early adopters. So they decided to go forth with it. We went and did the G-Force experience, things like that. We yeah, we got to some of the high Gs. How high can you take a kid? <laughs> How many Gs? I think we went up to five and a half. So not high. I mean, that's, high, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. That's a lot. Like, yeah, like yeah. In, they, when they actually chained the astronauts, they put them to like, I think, 11 or 12 Gs, yeah. which... About after 10 Gs, almost everyone passes out. Um, so, yeah, they're not going to stick a six, sixth grader in 10 plus Gs. Yeah, send him back. Yeah. His brain's all scrambled. <laughs> yeah, so they, they didn't do that. But, like, yeah, it was a really fun experience. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, yeah. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Brandon Patel. I am a graduate student here at Tennessee Tech. Yeah, so we first met because uh, my senior design project is uh, modeling the Baja CVT. And that's been going pretty well, I think. Um, I was expecting it to be a lot worse just because we're working with programs like uh, Simulink that we've never used before. But it's pretty intuitive, like the blocks that we didn't have to like learn any, you know, Java or C plus to get it working. But yeah, I, I appreciate you giving us uh, a quick tour of the Baja, uh, the lab, and also introducing us to Jeff. The genius mad genius or whatever yeah how's that <laughs> been going is jeff been a pretty good resource so yeah he has is just he talks so fast that we <laughs> had to like work rec- start recording it every time and then we just had a meeting with him and dr pardew and they like he wanted us to basically model it so it's by um the torque input so we don't even worry about like um throttle position and yeah. we're, we're trying to like figure out all the the variables and stuff but can you like i, I talk too much can you uh, tell us a little bit a bit about the baja team and what you do yeah so uh i when i first came to tech uh i moved in with my two roommates max and craig and as of that time they were the captains of the team um and so i got fully acquainted with the team so like from the get-go when i came to tech i was a member of the team and I was fully antiquated with the team and knowing all the back workings of the team. Um, so within one year, I was the captain of the team. So my second year as a member, I was a captain of the team. So that whole team is a, it's a large overtaking. So we fully design, build, and compete with the single-seat off-road race vehicle. Um, and we're operated like a company or organization. So we have full... Uh, financials that we have to maintain we have sponsorships we have to maintain corporate emails and contacts we have to maintain communications with so it's like you're really immersing yourself in a business and so you get to see all the different sides of engineering not just I design something and make it yeah I really didn't expect the uh, the scope to be that big like you guys have a lot of teammates and a lot of background stuff going on from you know the most basic fabrication of the machine the machine and yeah. the metal um you learn a lot of stuff like welding and um yeah. from all the way to like you said like the financial big picture uh, competition and also planning for the next design that the sae puts out so 
Could you go into uh, how the design has changed from this year, from last year? Yeah, so previous all the way from 77, so this has been a competition that's been going on for 50 years. Um, it's been a single-seat off-road racing vehicle with a Briggs & Stratton 10-horsepower engine, and there was no requirement for how many wheels have to be driven. Uh, you have to have four wheels. They can't be in line. So that's a simple requirement. This year, they for the first time ever, they changed the requirement for the engine. So now we're going to have to go to a... A 33% larger engine with the same power. So they're increasing the weight by the engine's now going to be a 14 horsepower engine, but they're putting a restrictor plate on it so it's back down to 10 horsepower. So the physical size and shape of the engine is larger. It's 22 pounds heavier than an outgoing engine, but we're still limited to the same power. Um, another major requirement is we're going to be having to run a four wheel drive system. So the last two years, they've made that a suggestion, and you get extra points if you implement it, uh, and it's and it's able to be actuated at each event during the competition. Um, due to some cost restraints and sourcing of parts, we tried to do that last year. We just weren't able to do it uh, quickly enough with all the supply chain issues. So we are from the ground up redesigning a whole car this year for four-wheel drive, and what we thought was going to be a similar size engine, but we're having to rework some things to implement that new engine. Uh, the rear in the car is going to be, really be a lot larger, and we're trying to move around the uh, weight so that we're not too back heavy because our engine's <laughs> yeah. like one of the furthest rear things of our car, so we don't want it to want to pop a wheelie all the time. So yeah. Nice. Make a nice rear engine car, like a Porsche. Yeah. Uh, what is the design challenge in implementing a four-wheel drive system when you've only had experience with rear-wheel drive? Uh, it's been, you know, how, how do we actually do it efficiently, effectively, and cost-effectively? That's the biggest thing, the cost-effectiveness. All these teams are operated on a budget that is pretty tight. Uh, some teams have larger budgets than others. Oh, yeah. That's not moderated between the SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers. We can use whatever we want in terms yeah. of resources and funds. There's no cost cap. There's no cost there's cap a, like Formula One or anything a, like that. Michigan has like all the uh, GM. Yeah, they have GM and Ford in their back pocket. Their budgets are a lot larger than ours. Yeah. Uh, they're able to use uh, more efficient, higher cost processes compared to us yeah. so we're having to do similar style design work but at a cheaper cost so that's been some of the major things like how can we manufacture this for cheap and not only that we ran into last year sourcing gears uh or trying to get gears manufactured mm -hmm. um but because of that problem the timeline on getting them made with the supply chain issues was like six months and also a high cost so one of our design aspects we changed this year, we wanted to manufacture it or design it so that we can buy off-the-shelf gears. So we don't have to have anything custom, try to make it a little easier on us and on other people if we're trying to source parts. So that's been some of the biggest design constraints or problems we've ran into that we're trying to solve this year. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, all those issues, I really think that um, Baja and also Formula SA are really good 
clubs to join if you're a mechanical or even like tangentially related engineering major. It gives you so much experience, so much hands-on dealing with problems and going through the process. So yeah, it really it really shows you the full side, especially if you end up in a corporate world or a larger company. You may move up the food chain, and you're a manager. Then you're doing a lot of the same tasks that we're doing as the managing part of Baja. We're doing the budget we're emailing sponsors or in that case other partners and things like that so it really is a parallel to the workforce of what you'll see later on in life yeah so we talked a little bit before and uh, i wanted to get into you and your roommates so you all graduated from the same school at the mm-hmm. same year and uh, you originally went to the ohio state university yeah. and and now you're at tech and you uh, are all mechanical engineers. So why did you want to become a mechanical engineer? Yeah, so uh, starting out is goes back way, way back. So I grew up in Florida. Uh, I was miles away from Cape Canaveral. And so it really started out aerospace. Uh, I really was into, you know, as a kid growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? Astronaut was the big word I always threw out. Um, so a lot of the astronauts out there mechanical or aerospace background or their fighter pilots or whatnot but so that's what really got me into it i was close i was immersed in that kind of environment um and so that's what really grew me towards that uh field so when i went to ohio state or the reason i decided to go to ohio state i want to do aerospace engineering so out of high school i decided to do aerospace um and so that was the main reason. I know UTK offers it in-state, but another thing was I was a homebody. I was close to home all the time, so I wanted to, you know, sort of get outside of Tennessee. So I didn't yeah. even apply to any Tennessee schools out of high school. I applied to schools way out. I applied to some California, up Michigan. I applied everywhere. Um, so I decided to go to Ohio State because I also wanted a large city. I wanted to have things to do outside of campus. Yeah, um, it's Columbus, right? Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. It's the yeah. ninth largest city in the U.S., or it was back in 2016 when I decided to go. Um, but it was one thing I noticed was you know, as I le- learned about aerospace and mechanical, I saw that how closely they were related. Mm-hmm. Um, and the aerospace program at OSU was two classes different than mechanical engineering. And so I sort of realized, well, why not? A me- why can't a mechanical engineer being working in the aerospace industry, and I found quickly found out that they a lot of the times they do. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Ohio State was moving towards a five-year program in terms of graduating, and I had scholarships for four years, so it made sense to come back to Tennessee where I could potentially graduate in four years with scholarships. Um, and it was a tough decision. I was looking at UAH because I was still considering um, aerospace going towards that field are sticking with that field and having the connections they do to NASA because NASA, mm-hmm. like I said, growing up in my backyard, I had close ties to them. So I, I wanted to potentially in, in game or in goal work with for NASA. So that was one option. But then in-state tuition was really what drew me to tech and having people I graduated high school with, having close partnerships or friendships with in high school, still being here. So that was major reason I decided to switch to Tennessee Tech. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty good story. I, I plan on uh, talking to Dr. Abinasif. Uh, he's an advisor, and it, it does blow my mind that um, that you were able to 
come up with I, I want to be an astronaut and have the track of aerospace engineering when you're in high school because yeah. a lot of people like me or we just kind of stumbled into college and uh, <laughs> I'm glad I get, ended up at, as a mechanical engineer because uh, some of the opportunities and co-ops I've had has been really great and yeah now we're both working on uh, with Dr. Chen and his uh, EV uh, lab mm-hmm. so well, how do you see yourself uh, transitioning? Or tell, tell us a little bit about um, what you do with Dr. Chen. Yeah, so what I'm really doing with Dr. Chen, we work on a multitude of projects. So so as I entered in, some of the projects I was working on, I was taking place of one of the students that recently graduated. Uh, so I was trying to fill in his shoes in terms of the autonomous vehicle sector. So we were implementing sensors uh, onto a Nissan LEAF to try to increase the level of autonomous features on that vehicle. That was a slow process as Dr. Chen was applying for a lot of grants that were more uh, community research-based, which we're still focusing on a lot right now. So there's a multitude of projects, and the other project I'm also I'm actually funded from is the community-based project where we're trying to implement uh, more EVs into the rural communities. I uh, talked to Cody a little bit about the... Uh outreach with the rural EVs mm-hmm. and you, you I remember the first time uh, you showed me around the lab you told me about this uh Ford F250 yeah that they put a pretty simple uh F uh hybrid system into and yeah. it only gained about one mpg yeah that that's that, that's on the positive side we haven't really seen the full capability that okay. is an yeah. assist powertrain so yeah. it's really only supposed to assist in acceleration or under load so when you're towing and we haven't done any towing ourselves with the vehicle okay uh so we don't know the full potential of of the system but in city driving there's little to no benefit for the system okay. so what uh what are your prior opinions and now how have they changed if that, if they did when you started working with uh EVs during your research? Well, so I, I guess I have a semi-unique uh, background with EVs. Uh, my family was an early adopter of EVs. Really? So, uh, yeah, my parents had the VIN number seven Nissan Leaf in the U.S. Oh, uh, the, the first generation? Well, yeah, the, the first generation. Uh, 2011, the yeah. The so, one? <laughs> yeah, so that was actually the vehicle I drove junior and senior year at high school. So Ooh, that was, yeah, so nice. I have a really... Uh, different viewpoint from a lot of other people coming into college or into this research area. I had a very early feeling of what EVs were uh, back in the early days of EVs uh, or mass-produced EVs, I should say. EVs have been around for ages. But uh, yeah, for mass-produced, I had that background. So I loved it in that aspect, except for the limited range of those vehicles. That vehicle, at the time I was driving it, had maybe a maximum range of like 70 miles. Really? If that was if you're driving conservatively. Yeah. Um, so it, it was great for me. I was driving 15 minutes to and from school mm-hmm. each day. Uh, for junior year, at least. My senior year of high school, I was commuting a little further, driving the interstate. And so in the wintertime, I had to fast charge it to get home. Really? So, wow. yeah, I was driving from Nashville to Murfreesboro, uh, which was about a 30-mile drive down the interstate and 30 miles on an EV takes probably about 50 miles of range maybe 50 to 60 it's funny how that works well, yeah. why, why do you think there's a, such a discrepancy like it well it's op- opposite of how internal combustion engine vehicles work you get better efficiency going at lower speeds and using regenerative braking 
Um, and since, like I said, it was an early gen EV, their uh, software wasn't as tuned to show you the range that you'll get <laughs> if you're driving at that higher speed. So it wasn't as accustomed to that. Eventually, over months, it did learn, and it when I fully charged, it would show like 50 miles of range. It was okay. the uh, furthest range, and then if I were to drive it all city for like a while, it would sh- go back up to that 70 or 80 miles of range. So it was really just it was adapting to how I drove or whatnot, which which was nice, but it was a slow adaptation. It wasn't a quick adaptation. But as I've joined this group now and have done research with EVs, the viewpoint has changed quite a bit, and the technology has changed quite a bit. So that was the one of the first mass-produced EV. And it had a air-cooled battery, so you couldn't mm-hmm. charge it that much quickly. Uh, so it actually limited you to one fast charge a day at max. Um, and newer EVs, you can do it as many times as you want. It has a counter within the system, but you can do it as many times as you want. And it, it's less; it doesn't de- deter from the battery as much. Um, over the course of the six to eight months, I drove it and fast charged it almost every day, I drained the overall battery health by 30%. So what was the percentage when you started? In, about in, 90. And, and then when I and went out about 60% battery health. So it would only charge up to 60% maximum capacity. What a, so isn't there a standard that they want to have after, is it like two, isn't it two years, it, they want to have it only go down to 80%? Uh, yeah, so their battery warranties, um, battery warranties now are better uh, for that. I forget what it was, um, but since the first couple of years of its life, it was driven lightly. I was out. We're outside of that warranty period because it wasn't yeah. fast charged every day for the first couple of years of its life. I was driving it 2015, 2016, so that was like four or five years in, and I think it was five years uh, and 75% health, and then they would replace the battery. Um, now you're looking at like Tesla's. They've done research where a hundred to two hundred thousand miles, uh, they maintain ninety five percent battery health. That so is impressive. It is yeah. a, the battery technology has changed so, so much, much in the years, yeah. even yeah, going back to twenty eleven or twenty fifteen when I was driving that vehicle. Yeah, yeah, it's been pretty much exponential the next yeah. last ten years yeah, and for when we, electric vehicles. And when we go to solid state batteries in maybe a decade or two. It's going to really change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked to Cody about that, about completely um, non-lithium ion batteries that can charge f- potentially four times faster. Yeah. And how much more range do you think? Yeah, I'm thinking I'm, with those kind of batteries, the density is way uh, better. You're looking at three to ten times the battery density. So for the same size battery, you can get a couple thousand miles of range. And you're charging it exponentially faster as well. So, yeah, in the in a decade or so, I think that's where we'll really see EV adoption rise. Uh, but of course, it's down to infrastructure for that mm-hmm. to be able to exponentially grow the EV adoption. You're not just the technology for the cars is not the only path. You also have to work for the uh, infrastructure to be able to charge them. Yeah. What is your take on the infrastructure currently that's being powered by? fossil fuels that your emission-free car is currently being powered by? Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a step in the right direction. I, it, of course, you can't change the full power grid over to clean energy overnight. Yeah. It, it, I think people overlook that, but 
people are targeting that now like oh yeah it's an ev but it's still powered by fossil fuels tennessee luckily is one of the cleanest states out there in terms of really? energy uh most of our energy comes from hydro and nuclear mm-hmm. which are fully renewable resources so we we as a state are better off uh and we also have one of the cheapest energy rates in the nation as well uh so tennessee is a good place for ev adoption uh, and you're not really seeing the fossil fuel side of the energy, uh, but other states, yeah, you're highly relying on fossil fuels to be able to power those vehicles. Or you see the pictures of our charging station hooked up to a big <laughs> diesel generator, kind of things yeah. like that. A lot of times, that's a emergency backup, and th- yeah. that's not the full scale of everything. That's just you see one thing and you put it out of perspective, kind of. Yeah. Thing. yeah. One thing that hurts the EV adoption is when you see headlines. Like uh, California trying to push uh, by 2035, only EVs being sold, and then the next month is uh, there's not enough power to charge all the EVs that are only about like five percent. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's still low percentage, but a lot of it comes down to yeah, the infrastructure is going to grow. You also have to think about there needs to be more done on when you charge your vehicle. So out in California, they have multiple tiers of power, like off-peak, on-peak, and then just normal. Uh, so like depending on when you charge your vehicle, you're being charged a specific amount of money per kilowatt hour. Um, so if you charge from like 10 p.m. on, your rate's gonna be a lot lower than if you charge at 5 p.m., which is one of the highest rates at the peak areas in the whole U.S. Like when people get home, when people are turning on their AC, people are starting cooking. So like there's a lot of power being used at like that 5 to like 7 or 8 p.m. range. So people, when they get home and they have an EV, they plug it in. Uh, But software uh, in the cars, you can have it delay charging to a certain time. So Or you could have a switch internally in your house. So it really needs to be that can be focused on, but people are overlooking that as well. So that will help, but of course that's not a, a fix for everything yeah. power grid wise. Yeah, the power grid is gonna have to definitely change. Um, these power companies are definitely gonna have to take note of what how the grid is affected by EVs. That's one thing I was definitely interested in, is uh, seeing how the next few years how much more power we'll need if we have mass adoption of evs and also during the texas you know, snow apocalypse when yeah. the entire state basically had no power because they're like had an independent grid yeah. yeah i did a little research on how much of the interdependency of the like the different regions of the country and also the different tiers that you're talking about like peak hours yeah. when people are at home versus when they're in the office and like the, the house can kind of just uh, to be in standby yeah. and there's, there's a whole uh, black hole of information that yeah. is a little more electrical engineering side but it's definitely interesting that uh, I'd, I'd love to do a, a little more research in uh, is it also interesting how your parents uh, were early adopters so why, why do you think they what, 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 uh, what kind of people are they to be like oh we, we want the first electric car why, why would you ever why would you do that? Well, they just knew that it had to start somewhere. They knew EVs or a change in efficiency of vehicles had to happen at some point. Um, both my parents are well-educated. They're both doctors, uh, and they were still, like, up and coming. They're young. I, Of all my friends I know, I have the youngest parents out there. Both my, my parents are only 42, so they're very young compared to a lot of people I know. Uh, so they're still 
their careers are still there. They haven't peaked yet in their career. They they keep on going up. They keep on increasing their positions and whatnot. But they just knew that the technology was there, but someone had to be an early adopter. And if everyone said, oh, I'll wait to the second gen, there's going to be no of those early adopters. So they decided to go forth with it. And they knew what their uh, commitment was to uh, travel. We knew we weren't going to replace both our vehicles with EVs. Mm. We knew we are a family that does like to travel. So we wanted a vehicle that was great for long travel. And we knew at that point EVs weren't the answer. Uh, and still sort of really aren't the answer, but um, we knew we wanted to keep a standard vehicle and we could still use an EV for most of our daily commutes. Yeah, when uh, I was talking to you guys in the, in the office, you, you were talking about how, Cody, well, why did you want to become a PhD? Your parent, uh, you're the first person in your family to get a, a higher degree. And then you talked about how you, you're stand, uh, keeping up with uh, your parents. Yeah. Two uh, two PhDs. So how or how did they do that? And also how do how do you live with that that hanging expectation? Well, it's different. They're they're PhDs in the medical field. Uh, that, that's that's more like if you're going to the medical field, that's more standardized. Uh, it's not as standardized in you know the engineering field to go all the way through a PhD. But it not necessarily had anything to do with my parents. It just it had more of me. I had experience out in the field as an intern and a co-op, yeah. and I saw what a typical like production engineering uh, uh, person does in the workplace, yeah. and that's not something I want to do long term. I wanted to focus more on the R&D or have more hands-on experience with what I was doing, and what I saw there was 90 to 95% of the time I'm behind a computer, 5% of the time, 5 to 10% of the time I'm maybe out in the line looking at what needs to be done. But still, that's what I didn't want to necessarily do. I wanted, like I said, I had the background of maybe doing aerospace engineering and doing stuff with space, and I wanted that to be more hands-on. I designed something, I go test it. And so yeah. that's where I really saw myself, and I saw that with a graduate degree, I could basically go towards that early on or right outside of my graduate degree, have that kind of role, and be able to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I had the same opinion when I'm um, touring, you know, manufacturing plants and seeing some of what the uh, engineers did. And it's pretty, it's pretty rough work when you're um, working, you, you're close to the, the technicians and there's a lot of, you know, manuals, labor that you have to do. And compared to um, what, you know, Dr. Pardew, he worked in R&D for a long yeah. time and that was a little more interesting to me so yeah, yeah I, I agree that if you want to get into more uh high level theory to r&d compared to down the pipeline to the design and then testing and validation and then manufacturing yeah. that it, it's uh, pretty invaluable to have a graduate degree yeah that testing and validation is where i really see myself that's what i want to that's where i see the most hands-on and like i said my experience with baja and stuff like that that's really sort of what pushed me I'm like I love this this is what I love to do and that's what really the testing sector is you design yeah. something go test it oh it breaks I gotta go redesign it and then yeah. you do you have that whole cycle again yeah. but you're part of the whole cycle you're not just part of one part of the cycle you actually get to do all parts of it so that's what I really liked and wanted to see myself doing in the future yeah you would have loved my uh, last co-op I worked with a uh, Bridgestone and their airspring division and we 
had the uh, lead engineers for a Cybertruck mm-hmm. come in and they designed the whole air spring assembly, what we put together, and then they blew a lot of them up just to see where the uh, yield strength it was yeah. of the uh, the rubber. And there's just all these test machines going millions of cycles every single day. You just yeah. hear the, the squeaking of the yeah. uh, <laughs> of the machinery. But yeah, some of that stuff is definitely some of the higher level, you know, R&D and you were... Just to um, be a, a lead of that, that, that that's something that would be so cool to be like a engineering lead of a big project. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what do you plan on doing in aerospace? Like, Not necessarily aerospace. It, like I said, I, I saw mechanical as I could do either side. I could work, still work in aerospace if I wanted to. Yeah. But as I sort of, you know, got more through high school, did more mechanical stuff. So I, I did a lot of robotics in basically actually elementary through high school my sixth grade i was still in elementary but i I did robotics from sixth grade through 12th grade um and so i had that was more of you know mechanical or mechatronics uh, side of things and i loved doing that uh i had i had my hands in all different aspects of that that was like a i guess you could say even a mini version of baja in terms of you saw the full engineering design process we still had a sales presentation, design presentation. We still did all the different forms of a business. We had to have our money uh, shown, our budget, where we used our money and everything like that. So I, I've been a part of a team like that for a while. Um, but that mechanical side of things really sort of was sort of pushing me more mechanical. And I sort of saw that, like I said, at OSU that I could do either way and I, I would still enjoy it. So being a part of that Baja team also saw started growing my more appreciation for automotive. Uh, mm-hmm. So my, my two sides, I have, I have, the, I have a, a liking to automotive and aerospace. So I don't know where I exactly see myself, um, but it, it would be in either sector. Uh, all my experience in terms of co-ops and internships has been in the automotive sector. Uh, so I can't particularly say, compare the two uh i don't have any experience actually in the aerospace sector that's another thing if i say i'm gonna like something i don't know if i'll actually like it until i actually do it so that's the thing that's why i'm glad i had those experiences in the automotive industry as those style of engineers so i could actually pursue this degree now instead of getting out to the workforce not liking what i do and then (laughs) having to go back to school or yeah or sort of like get through that job for a couple years so i could work up uh, and get to an R&D or a test engineering style role. What uh, other experience? Uh, you said you mentioned co-op and uh, internships besides yeah. the Abaha. Yeah, so I I started, uh, I had an internship with Nissan North America at their Deckard engine uh, plant in Deckard, Tennessee. Uh, it's the largest by production engine plant in the world. Uh, 1.1 million engines at maximum capacity each year. That is yeah, so that was a crazy. I was working on the current now, uh, the model year 2022 Frontiers engine. Uh, the engine was completely redesigned. I was working on the test equipment for that engine, making sure that we catch any defects of the engine before it left the plant. Because we were the engine plant, then it got sent to the vehicle assembly plant where it got put in the car. Um, so I had a great experience there. Uh, I loved the people I was working with. They actually immersed me as a full engineer as 
one of the engineers I was supposed to be working with went on a business trip to Japan. So I actually took over his role while he was gone. So I was really thrown in there and I had to learn quickly on my feet to what, what do I need to do? How do I need to operate? So I enjoyed that. That was a better experience, I would say. And then a year after that, I had a six month long co-op with Denzo um, in Athens, Tennessee. And that was more of a standard production engineering job, sitting behind a desk, Mm -hmm. designing stuff for the assembly line to make it more efficient. So I would go on the assembly line, I I watch the process, look at the data on the PLC, see where some some of the issues are occurring, how can I make that better, how can I decrease the amount of defective products or increase the flow of the process. it was fun for a little bit, but towards the end of that six months, I was getting like, this is repetitive. <laughs> and I don't necessarily want to do the same thing every day. Like, oh, I'm going to do this today. No, I want to have a little bit more lively, more action necessarily, not know exactly what I'm going to be doing that day. Maybe something happens and I need to change what I'm doing. So that job, that that being my second experience sort of is what pushed me into going to grad school. That first experience, if I would have had a second experience like that, maybe I wouldn't have gone to grad school because that Nissan experience was pretty good. I, I really enjoyed that experience. It may have also had to do with when I was co-oping at Denso, it was still during COVID. So uh, half the staff was working from home. It was like every other day someone would work from home, work in office. So there was some of that. A lot of the lines, like one full line would go down because all of them got COVID and that whole assembly line would be shut down for a week oh, and yeah. whatnot. But I don't know. I, I still saw it as I would just scale up in terms of the amount of work I did. It wouldn't necessarily s- scale the type of work I was doing. So that's what really pushed me into grad school. Hmm. Yeah, I, I understand now why so many companies, they want internship experience when they're hiring it because you pretty much already have so much of that entry level engineering experience. Like you said, they, when you, your uh, engineer went to Japan, you basically took over his role. Yeah. Like that was probably so much more, uh, experience you would have gotten compared to, you know, how school is. You don't yeah. really, yeah. you just, all the theory and all the work that you do, it really doesn't translate. It, it just sounds, uh, builds a foundation to learn. Yeah. Like the entry level of engineering stuff, but, for the most part, you're learning everything at your first position. Exactly. And even the my manager I was working with and whatnot, they, they had all their textbooks from school. Like they would, there, there would be projects I would see them work out. They would pull out the Thermo 2 textbook and they would be Thermo. using the Thermo textbook. So like you're, you're always learning if there shouldn't be a day in life where you're not learning. So like that's the thing. You're constantly learning through your job. If you're just going there and you're not learning it, it will get... Uh, repetitive and you'll get kind of boring at that point but if you're learning every day on the job that keeps you on your feet keeps you on your toes like it makes sure that maybe you design something one day and in a year or two down the road you've gained more experience and knowledge where you can redesign that to be more efficient or effective Mm -hmm. so that, that, that's a process that I, I do like I I've made sure based on those experiences where I keep my textbooks after I buy them uh, or rent them or whatever I buy them so that I have them as future reference yeah, speaking of thermo too man <laughs> I just uh, took a heat transfer exam where the first one half the class had F's from a because of Dr. Ivan Nassif yeah. and uh, I, I was just curious what a basically every engineer or every mechanical student is 
different the, the path that we take mm-hmm. and you, you sound like you were pretty uh set in becoming an engineer when you were a kid so yeah. how uh, how were you in uh, growing up in school and also the first couple of years in college uh in what aspects do you mean it's just like um like did you have a good uh foundation of studying as a kid and or did you uh kind of struggle yeah yeah, that's definitely a story so all the way through high school i never really had a study i went to as uh my two roommates max and craig we went to the what is now the number one school in the state of tennessee and and top five in the nation uh central magnet in murfreesboro uh and I, i took almost every single ap class that was offered and i would do well and i wouldn't really have to study besides maybe looking at the notes like 10 minutes before i go walk into class and that got me all the way through high school um so college hit me and it hit me with like a brick wall uh having no study or work ethic in that aspect hit me hard that like first semester when i started out college i didn't know what to do like yeah at that point, I thought of myself, I'm like, I really wish I sort of struggled in high school or early on so I got yeah. that work ethic and study habit so I could be more effective in college. But, yeah, I didn't have any of that. And it's still somewhat hard now. Um, I, you know, overactive mind kind of thing like that. If I'm not in a closed environment, like quiet environment, studying is a little hard for me. I studying wise i typically do better by myself uh unless it's a really applied topic then working stuff out on a whiteboard or whatnot then i can get a little bit of a benefit from that but i i didn't have any of that growing up in grade school at all that's pretty much a broken record i i I had a pretty much a similar experience where um, i grew up in like a a smaller town with a pretty good school and then uh, i went to the state school at a university of connecticut and that freshman year of just like just too much going on. Yeah. There's taking all the weed out classes for engineering. Exactly. So those are your harder experiences too. Of they're trying to physically make sure that only the strongest people get yeah. through. And yeah. so yeah, it's yeah. And also all the being alone by yourself the first time. What you were a freshman at Columbus, yeah, Ohio State, yeah, and uh, all the clubs, all the events, you know, parties and yeah, it was just, it was a much different experience. I was. Like I said, a homebody when I was back in, all the way through high school. And so that was another thing. I That was my first major time, like, being away from my parents for an extended period of time. Before that, I hadn't been away from my parents for, like, a week. It was the longest time I'd been away. Um, and so it was a very different experience going away. I did my first semester. I did fly home twice or three times a semester. So it wasn't like a full semester and then I'll come home. It would, I, I was away for a month at a time probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still a lot different experience. I'm around new people. That was another thing I was sort of iffy on. Um, going through high school, well, elementary through high school, I was around a lot of the same people. Uh, yeah. I have friends all the way through elementary school, through high school that I kept because we all sort of transitioned from the same schools. Uh, so going to a school out of state, no one from our even county went to Ohio State as well. So it's not even like I knew a single person going there when I went there. So that was a very different experience. But luckily, having got, I think the robotics actually helped me become more social. I was a semi, you know, more introverted person growing up. But 
being working in robotics and my, I think it was eighth grade year, I was put into the role of the sales presentation. And so that sort of forced me to be more extroverted. I have to act happy. I have to be act excited. I have to be able to talk to people and not a monotone voice, not a scripted voice. Uh, so I had to really change everything then. And so I think that experience really helped me and be able to make that transition into college from a very different experience and a very different lifestyle a little bit easier, if not a lot bit easier. I feel like every engineer has to go through that. All right, you're going to have to actually publicly speak. You can't just be that guy in the, your, the basement discoding yeah. or doing <laughs> everything by yourself. Because an engineer that can't communicate their ideas, the, the idea is just going to die with them. It's exactly. pretty much no, uh, no um, good uh, solution to other than just, all right, I'm going to throw myself into a uh, public, you know, uh, Cody had a job at Planet Fitness. Mm-hmm. I had a rece- receptionist job, and okay. it's just pretty much. I, I don't know what draws the, the certain type of person into engineering. It's just, it's pretty, it's pretty weird how it, they're all, we're, we're all the same. Yeah, yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're all background the same, and it's just when you transition, that time happens at different points in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I was into cars and into aerospace, like uh, like space, uh, Starcraft, uh, not Starcraft, Star Trek, and all yeah. those, all that stuff. And yeah, it's just it's an interesting journey. So you're not just an engineer; like you're into other stuff, right? Yeah, I'm into other. <laughs> yeah, I'm into other stuff. So my hobbies have expanded over the years. Um, a lot of my hobbies sort of focused around engineering in a way, which yeah. I guess, you know, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. But, um, like, I when I moved to Tennessee, I was originally born in Florida, like I mentioned. When I moved to Tennessee, uh, we became acquainted with some friends, uh, and he was a private pilot. He had his private pilot's license. And yes. so that sort of got me into... I flew in his plane in a little 1960s Aronka Champ two-seater uh, with no gauges, really. It was like old school flying. And so I flew backseat with him a couple of times. That really uh, got me into aviation a lot. So yeah. I started working towards my private pilot's license uh, in high school. Uh, wow. And I got most of the way there. Uh, so that's one goal I do have at some point when I'm more financially stable to actually finish <laughs> my private pilot's license at least. Uh, just Not only to say I have it, but I would love to use it and actually fly around. Uh, maybe go out to Oshkosh, Wisconsin for their big fly in. They have once mm-hmm. a year. Um, and some of the other hobbies, you know, I'm more into automotive now. I do all the maintenance on my car. So I have that mechanical side of me uh, pushing me. And like, I do all the maintenance on my car. I do all that. I do diagnosing. I've tuned my car myself. What do you drive? Uh, I drive a Acura TL with a manual transmission. So, uh, which, I, what year? 2007. Okay, with the V6? Yeah, it's a Type S. So it was a limited production model. Uh, they they made it the manual, and that's even more rare. So I have a rare version of a rareish car. And so I've put a lot of time, money, and effort into that car uh, to keep it on the road. My dad has the same car. That's where I sort of got the notion of that car. My dad owned it from new, a version of this car, not the exact same car. He had a silver one from 2007 until I think what 2017 where he, it was totaled I got mine a year later in a manual because I 
wanted to drive a manual. And so I found a manual and I learned to drive manual by, I bought it in Washington, DC and I drove it back to Tennessee. And that's how I learned how to drive manual. How many times did you stall? Uh, three times. Uh, two of those times were because I decided we stopped for lunch and I parked on a a downward facing slope and so reversing out of that was really hard uh so i stalled it twice there uh but finally i was able to get out i started to smell a little bit of burning clutch but uh you know you always have to live and learn um and so my, and then my dad missed that car after i got mine just on that drive home and so like a couple months later he bought another one uh so nice. he could have it again and he, he that's just still his daily driver uh, yeah, he his has over three hundred thousand miles on it, and it's still running just fine. Original engine, original engine, original transmission, everything's yeah. original in that car. Nice. It's a, yeah. Some like bushings have been replaced, but besides that, everything's yeah. original. Yeah, Hondas they last forever. Yes, they do. So, I, I can appreciate that. I have a, a Honda Accord, and it's been treating me. I've been I put twenty thousand miles on it in the last year. Yeah, so yeah. I I drive a lot. Like I got my car with one hundred and twelve. I'm at a. I hit one hundred seventy three today. And I got mine when I started at Tech, so it's like four and a half years old, and I've put sixty thousand miles on it. Yeah, so I've driven it quite a bit. Yeah, I appreciate you actually having a manual these days because yeah. pretty much no one I knew growing up had one. At this, <laughs> it's just I want to learn how to drive manual. Everyone has some. They they just had a manual and they just moved on to automatic. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I understand at this point. Like, if you were taking a, a long trip, you don't want to be shifting and wearing on the clutch when you're in traffic yeah but, but when if you want to actually have a driving experience yeah. there's nothing like yeah like me and my girlfriend like if we drive through knoxville or nashville i'm like we'll take your car because a lot of the times we drive through knoxville or nashville it's stop and go traffic every time so i'm like yeah well let's just take your car if we're doing that but like if we're, we're going out to like maybe gatlinburg or something they have a lot of twisty fun roads there i'm like let's take my car yeah. so yeah it really depends but yeah yeah, so you mentioned travel. So, what uh, have you been on any trips recently? Not really big trips recently. I've I've traveled a lot uh, with my family, but since I've been in college, like my family has traveled a lot with without me since <laughs> I've gone to college. But it's just mainly because our schedules don't line up. But like one semi unique experience I had uh, when outside of sixth grade, I had the opportunity to go to Turkey uh, for space camp. Ooh, so I went. Cool. So I spent two weeks with just eleven or twelve other sixth graders and one teacher. We went over to Turkey. We had one week of space camp and one week of exploring the area. So that was a really unique experience uh, that not a lot of people could say they have. It was a partnership our elementary school had with the program in Turkey. So they, it was really funded by this billionaire in Turkey and you just give them a donation but the donation was like pennies on the dollar for the whole trip it was barely anything compared to what it what the value of the trip was it wouldn't even pay for the flight the flight yeah was you basically paid for a part of the flight and you got yeah. a two-week experience out of it so yeah I do love traveling I want to go to Europe more I've been to London for back in like fourth grade and I was there for a week but I really want to go to like Switzerland, Germany. I really want to go explore those kind of areas of the world. And those places are beautiful. Yeah. Uh, every time I 
uh, look at a Porsche. I'm like, I, all right, I'm going to do a factory experience. I'm going to get yeah. it out of a uh, sugar and yeah. drive it around Northern uh, Europe. And yeah, uh, the, those are one of the trips that I definitely would plan for. Can you tell me a little more, more about the uh, space camp? What, uh, what you did, uh, what a uh, area of Turkey? Yeah, so we were in both Izmir and Istanbul, Turkey. Mm. Uh, I think the camp was in Izmir. We explored Istanbul as well as a part of the second week where we got to explore the area. Um, But the space camp itself, we really dove into a lot of the actual technical areas of space and space travel. Uh, We got to be a part of some of the simulators. So we we went and did the g-force experience things like that we Ooh. yeah we got some of the high g's how high can you take a kid <laughs> how many g's i think we went up to five and a half so not high i mean that's high, that's, 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 pretty, that's pretty good that's a lot like yeah like yeah. in like when they actually chained the astronauts they put them to like i think 11 or 12 g's yeah. which about after 10 g's almost everyone passes out um, so yeah, they're not going to stick a six, sixth grader in 10 plus G's yeah, <laughs> send him back. Yeah. His brains all scrambled. <laughs> yeah. So they, they didn't do that, but like, yeah, it was a really fun experience and it wasn't just our group. So there was groups from California, groups from other countries. We were immersed for one day with a Turkish family. So we got to see a day in the life with the Turkish family, like a more traditional experience. So that was a cultural experience that not a lot of people got to have. You know, it's one thing visiting a country, but to actually be fully immersed in their culture yeah. uh, was a pretty nice experience and not something everyone gets to do. So that was really fun. Um, yeah, the space camp's one thing. It was It's a similar style space camp to the one they provide in Huntsville, Alabama, mm-hmm. but he just had a, you know, he had the cultural difference. Yeah. And I guess you could say somewhat of a shock. You know, you're sixth grade and you're traveling to a, a Middle Eastern country and stuff, but like in a small group, it was it was very different than yeah going to us down to Alabama and doing a space camp there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that travel. I mean, I'm probably one of them that you know you you go travel to you know Mexico and then you go to Cancun and stay on the resort the whole time. And it's a yeah, lot. Exactly. It's a lot different than actually being immersed with you know the family, seeing what how they live and yeah. what their day to day life is. It's, completely different experience if you've only lived in you know your own town for your whole life yeah. i mean as a sixth grader i mean i'm sure you yeah. like, <laughs> didn't I, really understand yeah this in the type of family i grew up in i had more of an appreciation for that that's okay. how i was raised i was raised not to take things for granted for what you have and things like that and because of my family's age and everything like i was born when my parents graduated high school so oh, wow. i they raised me all the way through undergrad and grad school so like I I saw all different sides of my family in terms of financial and the amount of time they were to spend with me. So like I, I had a very different lifestyle throughout the ages of me growing up as well. Yeah. So. Can you tell me a little bit about um, did you uh, your parents or uh, live in the United States or did they uh, grow up in another country? Yeah. So I'm only actually half Indian. I'm ha- half I guess. Uh, white as well um my both my parents were actually born in the united states my dad is indian he spent i think four years in india but he was born in right outside chicago uh but he spent a couple years in india uh early years i think like two through six or something like that um he spent over in india then he came back to the states and he's hasn't actually been to india since i've never been to india actually Uh, we had always planned on a family trip but one thing comes up or another thing comes yeah. up and 
we don't want to go in the middle of July when it's 110 <laughs> degrees. So we were like, we knew if we were going to go, we were going to go in like December when it's colder. Uh, but we never ended up making the trip. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you talked a little bit about your parents and the, the, the struggle and also the two PhDs, which yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My parents, they, uh, I mean, I, I kind of have like a similar story with you because uh, I migrated when they were uh, in grad school. Okay. So they uh, got their scholarship and were able to uh, start living here and get their master's. And I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> they both graduated the top of their class. I'm kind of like, I uh, had a two point something in high school. <laughs> so I kind of was, a. Uh, there's a lot to live up to, but yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, like you said, there's a, um, you see them go through like the, the lows and now the highs. I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could uh, relate to never having uh, any getting anything from FAFSA or yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. Or like I don't know, you're. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if the two doctor, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive to um, yeah to have parents like that and yeah they yeah they don't take it for granted. They they keep on working their hard. They're actually both doing a second online master's right now as I oh, speak. Great. They're like, so they, they've, they've actually asked me things, questions about school because it's been a decent amount of time since they've been out of a traditional school environment. I know this is all about mine, but they're like, did you have a uh, mentor or something you worked with? Cause that's one of the things they're doing with, yeah. or like the same, they're using the same style website we use, like I learned, they're using mm-hmm. the same thing. So they were asking me advice on how to use it and things like that. So I was like, uh, huh, uh, how the tables have turned. You, yeah. Instead of you giving me advice, I'm giving you advice on school. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I appreciate your, uh, your story and yeah. uh, everything that you've uh, been able to speak on because I've, I know this, it's kind of hard to relate to someone like the undergrads because I'm kind of older yeah. <laughs> compared to them. So it's, um, yeah, your, your story is, uh, has been, uh, resonating with, a little with me. So yeah. what, um, what, what are your future goals, plans for uh, your career and also not just your, like your life, family life? Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I don't know exactly where I see myself. Like I, I've alluded to over the course of this, uh, talk, I've, I don't know if I see myself in the automotive or aerospace. Um, yeah. I I want to I sort of want to see the aerospace sector from a f- uh, first-hand perspective, actually working there. So I do see myself at some point maybe in the aerospace sector, but I, I don't know. I, since I have my experiences now and the research I'm doing is automotive, I I probably see my first job being in the automotive industry as where that's where like my resume sort of points me towards <laughs> in a way. Like yeah, it, yeah I may be. Uh, qualified for some of the roles in terms of an entry level aerospace engineer, but you know that's not like I said that's not where my goal my sight is set towards on entry level role. I want to sort yeah. of move past that and start at more of the R and D sector. So I think where my resume points me is into the automotive sector. And like I said, I, I've enjoyed the automotive sector. It's not like I'm settling for the automotive sector and I have the aerospace that's way out there that I, I can't reach for. I, I I should be able to get into the aerospace sector. And like I said, I could walk into the automotive and love it and never want to leave. So yeah. it just really depends. But I, I definitely see myself just being hands on. I don't want to be stuck behind a desk ever for like Forever. a week like never yeah. does like a week never have 
touch anything mechanical or anything that I'm doing. I don't want to have that kind of experience. I, I know in reality, I'll probably have a week where I'm behind a desk or doing something like that. I'm dedicated for or under a deadline or something like that. But I know next week, oh, I'll be able to test this out or something like that. So. Yeah, that's always the, the nightmare of being in your cubicle for the rest of your life. Uh, yeah. No SpongeBob. Just, <laughs> that, just, just every single day just drags on to the same, you know, next 10 years of your life. But Yeah, I, I, I've, I've really seen the aspect of if you enjoy what you're doing, you're not working a day in your life. And that also applies in terms of the day goes by much faster if you're enjoying what you're doing or you're engaged in what you're yeah. doing. Definitely. The time will fly right by, and you you're like, oh, I need more time. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah. You, you, the time just flies. Versus if you're just there, just trying to get through the day, the day drags on forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. I I talked to Doctor Pardew about uh, my uh, trajectory, and he said that aerospace they they're also looking into EVs, but they're behind. So that'd probably be a good entry point once they yeah. Uh, one of uh, the Dr. Rory Roberts, some of his research involves battery tech, so they're looking at, or not necessarily battery, fuel cells, so they're looking at solid oxide fuel cells uh, for the aerospace sector. So there is that sort of transition in from the automotive into the aerospace industry. So that that, that is another point I saw myself. I could sort of transition into that based on that point. Oh, I could see where the aerospace or astrospace field is going to be using fuel cells to move forward so yeah that was an interesting thing i so i i i guess i assumed they were doing research but i just didn't know it was even that close to heart where we're actually doing research to help out with that do you uh, ever plan on getting uh, your own private plane or uh it, i guess it all just circumstantial just depends uh i don't see myself flying all that often so i, I don't i okay. would say i would yeah. say i would see myself renting a plane yeah. and flying it for a vacation or something or just for fun uh, with some friends or uh something like that but i don't see myself owning a plane unless i i had i had at one point seen myself maybe joining the military to be a fighter pilot um, mm. and so like i've, I've had multiple trajectories in my career but i've always known i want to do engineering that kind of sector but like even the last couple of years, probably like going three years back, I was in full contact with the military recruiter. I completed all my tests uh, to be a fighter pilot and everything. I was just in the waiting game for if they will accept it because they're, of course, very selective uh, and things like that. So it was just I mean, I'm still technically in a pool of pilots or potential pilots to join the military. So. Uh, that that'd be interesting. Have you have you run through the uh, different options if they ever you know make the call? Yeah, it, it it's come up a couple of times. Uh, at this point, I don't know what I would say. It is a drastic lifestyle change. You know, join the military. You, you know, you're not in a specific spot for all that long. This would be with the Navy, so you're it could be all over the place. And uh, I'm more of a person. I like I want to have a stable career. So that's another thing okay. I saw. I being a part of the Navy, I would definitely not be stable. <laughs> no. You're 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 on a boat for maybe a year at a time, or you're flying yeah. missions out here and there, and so that that was an, an also a point of view I saw. I'm like, I would love to do this job, but it would be something maybe I do now, and I settle down eventually with a normal 
stable career later on maybe get that out while i'm young quote, quote unquote <laughs> it's like get my wild side out while i'm young and then yeah. settle down later on so it, i thought about it. it would be something i'll have to talk over but yeah yeah that's definitely i mean perspectively that's definitely a cool uh job but yeah some of the uh some of the selection and there's so much that goes into it you yeah. really have to be you know extremely dedicated to make one of those tiny like I don't know how many slots they have, but not many. Like, <laughs> and then, like now with the, you know that new Top Gun movie coming out, there, there yeah. was a huge surge in applicants and things like that. So yeah. you know, <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure. Do you uh, have anything else? We yeah. talked a lot. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, but no, I don't have any questions for you or anything. No. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no uh, problem. It was kind of a short notice thing, but yeah, all good. You every uh. I don't know. All of you guys have been pretty good. Not not too much. Uh, I, don't know, I feel like I need to be be better, like <laughs> speaking, public speaking, because you guys you do you know you do talks, you do at the conferences, and yeah, you, have, uh, you just have to you have to we have, we adapt on the job kind of thing. And like I said, that it all started early on for me, so I've had plenty of years of experience public speaking and comfortable and uncomfortable environment so i've gone both ways where i don't know exactly what i'm talking about and i have to try to like flow with it or try to make it up as i go (laughs) or an area that i'm fully knowledgeable in and i can speak for hours on end on it so yeah yeah. for better for worse you'll you'll either uh, crash and burn or you'll do pretty well yeah uh do you want to plug any of your projects that you're working on or are those all top secret are you talking about for Dr. Chen? Yeah. Uh, we're like, like I said, I've, I've mentioned the projects that I started out on, and those are basically the projects currently working on. Um, a lot of this stuff has been focused towards that rural reimagine project where we're trying to implement more EV knowledge, uh, vehicles, and infrastructure slash chargers into more rural environments. We started out uh, with the project in the Upper Cumberland, Tennessee area, uh, but now we're moving it to five states. So we have Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So we're trying to expand that same concept, but on a larger scale. Um, so that that's a big change from, you know, we can go drive down the road for an hour and we're at the furthest point of our project scope. And now, you know, we could drive eight hours and we're still not at the edge of our project scope. So we, we have to do a lot more delegation in terms of working with our partners and things like that with the project. So it's a different side of things. And like this is a multi-million dollar project. So it's a lot larger scale and you actually have to do the delegation. Otherwise, if you try to do all the work yourselves, you can't get, you're not going to be able to get anywhere. Yeah. yeah if you, I want to install this charger in Ohio, I'm not going to drive eight hours to go install it in Ohio, kind of thing like that. So makes sense well i appreciate you coming on yeah Uh, no problem 